Greetings from Charlottesville, Virginia, and welcome to Global Commerce Exchange. I'm Peter Millay, and I'll be your host for today's conversation at the crossroads of global affairs and the world of business. Our show is brought to you by the Center for Global Commerce at the University of Virginia. Now, let's get started. I'm delighted to welcome as my guest today, Chao Ma, Portfolio Manager at Cooper Investors, a 10 billion US dollar investment fund based in Melbourne, Australia. After growing up in Guangzhou, China, Chao attended the University of Virginia, from which she graduated in 2006 with a degree in commerce. Following two years in investment banking at Lehman Brothers in Hong Kong, Chao returned to the U.S. to earn her MBA from Harvard Business School. Since then, she's built an impressive career as a global tech-oriented investor, including time at KOTU Management and Jericho Capital. Today, she runs Cooper's Asian Equities Fund, based in Melbourne. Chao, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, so you live and work in Melbourne. How long have you been there and what's that like? I've been here for just about three years um, and it's been incredible, um, you know, for, for someone who invests in Asia. So on the work front, when, when I was in New York for about 10 years, you know, I work very frequently, pretty late at night um, because you basically have about four hours a day to really overlap with the Asian time zone and speak to Asian management. Um, now I have basically all day to, to call management in Asia and, and call the on the ground um, networks. And when we go travel to Asia, there's no time zone difference. So that's been pretty great. And in general, Melbourne is just a fantastic city to live in. So uh, I've been pretty happy so far. Now, what about the COVID picture? What's that been like for Melbourne? How has it affected your life, your ability to do your work? Um, what's the current status? Yeah, so as of now, um, the, the city I live in, the city of Melbourne, has been 45 days and counting with zero cases. So, you know, in terms of social life, of meeting up with friends and going out, um, it's been pretty normalized, which has been a, a huge blessing. Um, as a city, we suffer through almost 90 days of stage four lockdown. Um, so the day we opened up, it was a very happy day for all five million residents here. Um, but, you know, if I actually have to observe what happened in Australia, I think it was the classic cycle that all human beings go through, which is what I call the humility to hubris cycle. Um, so when COVID first hit Australia, um, it was very well under control. So there was a lot of hubris to say, oh, we are our own big island country. And, you know, this global pandemic didn't have a whole lot to do with us. And one slippage in a hotel quarantine um, led to over a thousand cases in Australia, almost spread out overnight. Um, and then that went into very extended lockdown. And now I think there was proper humility in all the measurements that's being put in place um, that, you know, basically maintain the rationality balance between vigilance and also sort of, you know, letting the economy, letting people live their lives. So you're back in the office now, I take it, or do you still work from home? I'm back in the office about half of the time. Um, it's been pretty great. So we continue to recruit and have new team members join over the past few months. Um, so it's been really great to finally work with them face to face in the office. I can only imagine. So tell us about that 85 day lockdown period. I mean, your job, I 
understand is dependent on getting on airplanes, meeting with people, interacting with your portfolio companies. Suddenly that possibility just goes right out the window. How did you pivot? How did you continue to do your job when you couldn't get out of the house? Well, we pivoted very, very quickly. Um, and it's, it's quite interesting to see um, how you know, people on the buy side and also management that we speak to on a daily basis pivot as quickly as some of the portfolio companies that we actually invest in with their business strategy. So, you know, when China first went into um, the COVID crisis back in end of January, for us, it was very obvious that this will definitely spread out to the rest of Asia, if not globally. Um, so we actually get on Zoom, we go on WebEx, we get Microsoft Teams very, very quickly. And whenever we speak with management, we start basically offering these video capabilities instead of the traditional phone call. And we found that, you know, having these one-on-one -on -one video interactions will at least get you about 70% there at having a real life conversation. There's still 30%, you know, sort of missing um, from the conversation, but far greater than the traditional sort of a landline or a phone call. Um, so we, we switched to Zoom almost overnight. Um, and, you know, to our delight, the management themselves also realized that if they want to continue the dialogue with shareholders, which by the, by the way, with the volatile stock market is incredibly essential to keep your shareholders really communicated well um, and then on the same page with you. So they're actually very willing um, to also give Zoom a try. Um, so, you know, we joke about it and say for the first half of the pandemic, I get to see the living room and the kitchen and the bedroom with a lot of the CEOs that I always speak to. Um, and then for the second half of the pandemic, they're all back to work and they get to see, you know, my bedroom, my kitchen and my living room. So it's also so another layer of getting to know each other better almost. So just to follow up on that, I mean, years ago I worked in Asia, so I well understand how um, much of a how much the personal dynamic, the personal connection matters uh, to business in China and really throughout the region. Do you feel, Chow, that you've been able to use online tools like Zoom to, to make those important personal connections? Or is something still somehow missing and you really feel the need to be in the offices of your portfolio companies? I think there's nothing like being the offices of the portfolio company. And it's not just about being the office of the CEO's office, right? It's also about eating at the employee dining hall. It's about walking the building. It's about watching the employees walking back and forth, you know, on the on different aisles of their desk. There are certain things that's in the air. You know, so when we say when we go observe a company's culture, culture is actually something you cannot really read about or fully understand, even if the company describe it to you in an annual report or any of the research report. Actually, most of the Wall Street report, if you search for the word culture, no matter how long the research report is, you tend to have zero hits because no one actually write about it. But when you actually go visit a company, it's something is impossible not to see. It's everywhere. It's in the air. It dictates how people behave. It dictates how they bring one piece of paper to another. It dictates how they give each other a cup of tea. So it's everything. So there's really nothing like, you know, being live at, at the site. But that being said, um, to build one-on-one -on -one connections, I do find Zoom actually quite an effective tool. 
Um, so we just did our annual portfolio review and we initiated about 14 new stocks into the portfolio. And out of the 14 companies, you know, we have one-on-one -on -one interaction with, with the key decision maker with basically all of them. And out of the 14 sort of new portfolios, I would say seven management teams we never spoke to before um, pre-COVID. So the connections were solely built on a virtual sense, but through you know five or six sessions of, of, of these virtual Zoom sessions, we actually get to know them fairly well and, and get to that comfort level. But an additional thing, is you know people just assume when you do meetings in zoom you just turn on the camera and you continue to really interact the same way as 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 you know you were in a live conversation that's actually a misconception so what we did is we actually bring in a performance coach um, that usually coaches um, actors and actresses and you know their communication way is exclusively through the screen when you think about TV shows and movies. And we actually have them coach the investment team to how to communicate and how to make your presence stronger um, over the screen. And it turned out to be a whole different technique. And we actually really enjoy learning about that. That's really fascinating. So so let's talk about that portfolio a little bit and, and your overall investment approach. And the place I'd like to start is to ask are you a tech investor? Is that how you would describe yourself? Or would you say that you're more of a generalist who looks for game-changing tech across a wide variety of industries? Probably closer to the latter. Um, so, you know, using a term that's not quite good, um, I, I usually call myself a new economy investor. Um, and that's precisely to your point, Professor, is, is tech today the narrow definition of tech of both the tech software or hardware companies is far too narrow to actually describe the influence of tech in our lives. Um, so we've actually found some of the best bargains in traditional companies that are still trading at traditional company valuation multiples. Yet if you look under the hood, tech is really what's changing the business, what's driving the earnings growth. Give us an example of a company that that is emblematic of that idea of not being a tech company, yet it is technology that's driving value. It's everywhere. Um, so I could name 10 different verticals where we found a tech leader within the vertical. Um, so, you know, one of my favorite quotes came from the CEO of Yum China um, that runs about 8,000 KFC China stores. And she actually said, we are a tech company that happened to be selling fried chicken. And that really summed up the type of companies that we're looking for. Um, so, you know, one of the uh, hotel groups that we invest in is called Huazu Hotel. And I will probably call them a tech company that happened to be running hotels. Um, another actually is a global company, but trades out of Asia is called Tektronic. And it sells um, uh, DIY tools. So think about lawnmowers. Um, think about anything you use to around to fix the house. But it's really that lithium battery platform um, that they share across the two that drive the innovation. So it's probably a tech company that happened to be selling power tools. Um, so you, every single vertical of the industry, we have observed the exact same pattern, which is the leader of the industry are seriously using tech as a long-term differentiator for their own businesses. Okay, so some of our listeners right about now, 
might be thinking, what does technology have to do with fried chicken? And what does technology have to do with hotels? So help make that real for us. How are these companies using technology? Yeah, let's use the fried chicken example, because who doesn't love fried chicken? Um, so you might think, you're right, what does fried chicken have anything to do with technology? Well, let me tell you why that's important. So 95% of all the transactions um, that KFC China does in China is actually through mobile payment, which means they get to see and they get to connect to the customer profile what kind of people are ordering what kind of chicken. So that's the first level of data collection. The second one is all the loyalties, uh, membership and uh, points are now run through their membership. So about, you know, of course, 60, 70% of all their customers have already signed up to be their members, which means they know where you live, they know who you are, they know your age group, and again, they know your order history. So then two things happen. One is the advertising spent that traditionally gets spent on TV. And yes, the, the classic is everybody sees it, but you don't know who sees it. All of a sudden, you can tailor that marketing very, very specifically to different groups of people. So you can start sending coupons to moms um, for the family bucket on Tuesday night. So, you know, use a lot of savings, but the hit rate and the conversion rate of these um, sales and promotions are so much more effective. And then you go to the second layer of tech, which is if you know what consumers are actually buying, what type of chicken, at what type, at what season, and um, you also know, you know, all of a sudden, the, this region of China have a big spike in spicy food. Well, you can actually go back and re-engineer your menu and start pushing the spicy food to a particular region in China. So KFC China is famous for coming up with roughly 200 new items on the menu every year. And none of these innovation are actually made out of a lab. All these innovation come out of the data they collect from the consumers, and then they keep tweaking it. And then they continue to see which item menu actually have a big hit, and then they roll out nationwide. So the success rate of the new product launches also become so much higher. So this flywheel just keep going and going. Now you think about the competitors of KFC China. First of all, they are much smaller. So they don't have these massive data to really mine. And secondly, they don't have a large R&D team. So even if they know, okay, there is a spicy crayfish burger, which sounds completely insane, um, is really taking off, they don't have the R&D capability and they don't have the supply chain capability to go source hundreds of kilos of crayfishes and roll out in thousands of stores. So this is really where you use tech as the edge, but you combine tech with a lot of the traditional competitive advantage that you have. So what you're telling me is that Yum Brands is actually a data company. Yes. And actually all the good consumer brands in the new age and or in the new economy have to be a data company. Otherwise, you are going to really have inefficiency issues with your marketing. You are really going to run blind on your R&D and there are just no way you can innovate as fast as the way that consumer tastes change. So let me follow up with a couple of questions that I picked up reading a little bit about your investment style that really stuck out for me. And the first is I noticed at a recent investor conference, 
that you spoke about your interest in what you call young at heart companies. And in that speech, you noted that within five years that millennials will comprise 70% of the global workforce, which I thought was really fascinating. What do you mean by young at heart companies? Tell me about that. Yeah, so I, I love the young at heart companies and it's probably one of the most important cultural attributes that we look for in our portfolio companies. What I really meant by that is one, the level of flexibility and adaptability. Um, and COVID is actually the perfect example. So lots of people say in COVID, companies that are good at tech are great. They transform into home delivery. Companies that are bad at tech got washed aside. But it's not really about tech. It's about the mentality of being flexible and the mentality of being adaptable. So I often think the companies that happen to pick up a lot of interesting technology over the past month or over the past year, let's say if COVID had been a very different pandemic and really is about setting tables in the park, that's really what's going to set you aside. And I bet you these companies will be at the front forefront of doing that as well, because it's not about you know, thinking through data is really about thinking through what has changed around me and how do I change myself to really fit in the environment better. And that's a very young way of thinking about your life is to not say this is the way I do things and that's what I know and that's what I'm going to stick to it is to say observe and let me change myself and to have that humility of saying the world is different now. What worked in the past might not work today. So all this is a very youthful way um, of thinking about management. So that would be the first one. And the second one of young at heart is simply promoting the young talent. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of people, when I go and, you know, we do about 500 management interviews across Asia a year. And, you know, and we often look at people's CV before we go and we start sort of recognizing some patterns. To be an SVP of the same company for 20 years is not necessarily a fantastic thing because that means the guy has been doing the same job for 20 years and, you know, incrementally not a whole lot of insights. What we actually love seeing is a, a person who has been given a very big job, especially, you know, given reasonably young he or she is. And that person tend to be very dynamic, have a lot of interesting ideas. And the fact that the company is willing to promote a young person like that also tells you something about the company. So that's really some of the key things we're looking for in the young at heart companies. So talking about uh, management, let me follow up there because another aspect of your um, investment approach that I thought was pretty interesting is that you seem to really favor uh, founder-led companies. And of course, sometimes the conventional wisdom that's taught in a business school is that founders are really great at founding companies, but sometimes they're not that great at managing companies once they become large and professional management teams have to be brought in to take companies to the next level of maturity. I picked up that you don't necessarily believe that, that you see real value in companies that are led by founders for long periods of time. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I, I love founder-led companies. Um, then, of course, there is more than one way of skinning a cat. So there are plenty of highly professionally run companies that turn out to be fantastic investments for investors. So this is definitely not to say, you know, professional management does not create value. But there is one particular founders um, that we really love investing. 
Um, and, and that's really the type of founders that has the soul and has the passion into the business. And I personally have found that to be such a massive deciding competitive advantage, especially in places in Asia um, in, over the long period of time. So, you know, let me maybe give you an example. So think about a founder. He founded the business, put his sweat, tears and soul into this business. And this is all he has. So the founders we back tend not to be the one that also dip their fingers in real estate and dip their finger in a few casinos in Macau. These are really the founders that, that spend all their time thinking, eating, breathing, drinking, thinking about the business. And the competitor of these kind of founder-led companies in markets like the US or in Australia might be a very professionally run, very experienced management team. So, you know, it's a, it's a real fight between, you know, the two types of culture. But when you take it, you know, the same comparison to Asia, then the competitor to this founder-led business tend to be either a state-owned enterprises where you know, the, the guys at top are really politicians worry about their own promotion than um, making commercial interest for their shareholders or very small mom and pop operator um, who probably just promotes the uncles and aunties in various business positions just to give the family jobs. So you know, we joke about it amongst our team and say, when you take the founder-led business that's really passionate, that that you know really care about creating long-term value for both his family and his shareholders against these type of SOE or mom and pops, it's like taking a hot knife through butter. Um, and the competitive advantage is just so big. So that's the first point. I would say the second point is, you know, to your point of founders might not be the best one at running the business, I have a lot of sympathy for that point. And the best founders that we found um, have been, you know, the one that set up the business really surround himself with a lot of fantastic operators um, on the professional sense, and then focus all his time on two things. One is how do you strategically transform the company? What is the next real transformation? So professional managers are very, very good at keeping the ship steady, but they're not very good at completely changing what you do. So only a founder will have the ability of actually selling a cash cow of the company and, and dedicating all the cash to, let's say, either a new direction or a new innovation. Um, only a founder had the kind of pull, had the kind of support from the business to do something like that. So the next big change should be where the founder spent all his time thinking about. Give us a couple of examples of founders who you really uh, value and really appreciate for what they've been able to do in leading their companies. Absolutely. So Tencent is actually just a fantastic example of it. Um, so Tencent remains a founder-led company. Um, the founder of Tencent, Tony Ma, founded a company in 99 and you know, remain very, very present at the company today. Um, and if you actually observe what Tencent has changed over the past call it, decade and a half is incredible. If you just look at it from a PL or income statement perspective, you wouldn't even recognize Tencent today from Tencent five years ago to Tencent 10 years ago. It started off as an instant messenger company. Then all of a sudden, within five years, it became the best gaming company in China. So gaming became 100% of the PL. And then five years later, it added advertising. Um, then advertising become, you know, call it a third um, of the business. And then it added fintech. 
And then now, if you look at the entire PNL, gaming is actually less than half. Um, and then there was probably five additional earnings drivers that come through on Tencent. But if you actually look at how they achieve different successes in these different businesses, it really required very dramatic reorganization of talent and resources within the business. And this kind of decisions often could only be made by the founder himself. So Pony, after realizing that, let's say, desktop games might not really be the future of gaming, actively reorganized the entire gaming business and gave the mobile game studios, back then was losing a lot of money, a lot of company resources. And then, you know, naturally that caused a lot of conflict because the, the, PC, gave, the PC gaming team thinks we are making all this money, why are you giving all the resources to mobile gaming? So, so balance these type of internal conflict and ultimately really backing the future, that just takes a lot of guts yeah. and it takes, takes real sort of decision-making power. And we have never seen a committee of management to make that kind of controversial decision that usually needs to push by almost a singular vision by a singular founder. What you're describing there um, is what I believe you all at Cooper refer to as optionality or value latency. This idea yeah. that when you value a company, you can't just discount its future cash flows based on the current business models and the current products, but that you need to think about the potential for incremental sources of value. And I guess you're arguing that founders are better positioned to do that than perhaps more professional management that have just been brought in to kind of run the current company. Am I getting that right? In some circumstances, yes. Um, so the value latency concept is, and, and you know, we've always had problems explaining to our own investors why we're not value investors. Um, we are, we, we care very much about value. And I would say every number of our model, even with the value latency, in order to quantify it, you have to put a value on it. You have to have a way of thinking about revenue and margins. But what we are saying is the traditional way of thinking about PE is to take the historical free cash flow or the historical earnings and apply some, you know, very nominal growth rate over the past, you know, over the next 10 or 15 years. But you act, when you actually observe the life cycles of a company, it never turns out that way. No one grows 20% for five years, then 10% for five years, then 5% until perpetuity. Um, companies actually tend to do, if you actually look at the growth rate, they tend to grow 20% for three years. And then if they can't innovate, they drop to 5% immediately and probably go into negative. Um, or they come up with something new, then you become 20, 20, 10, 15, 20, 25 again. So you, you just go up to the next cycle. So to us, to have the right management team, to have the right culture, to have the right innovation in place, give you that optionality that growth could actually reaccelerate. And then the alternative of that is, you know, we, we, we've actually think about this framework, terminal value growth um, in the classic business school sense is always between one to three percent. Well, actually, in reality, terminal growth rates should probably be negative uh, because if you really cannot reaccelerate your growth, you're going to go into decline um, as a company. And it's just a matter of how fast you decline. So it may be on average 3%, but of course, you're not investing in on average. You're investing in specific companies that are either going to go into terminal decline or are going to have explosive growth in the future. 
let's talk a little bit about that explosive growth and where it's going to come from. And and obviously, there's a lot being written right now these days about so-called Industry 4.0 technologies, technologies that are really seen as disruptive and highly transformational, things like artificial intelligence and 5G and the Internet of Things and advanced robotics. How much do you all focus on those kinds of technologies and how do they fit into um, the investment theses that you develop? Yeah, so we never study technology for technology's sake. Um, so I've done that for a good part of my career and that actually sort of not turned out to be a very um, effective way of finding actionable investment targets. What I meant is, let's say as an investor, if you really go out and study lithium battery for five years of your career and then trying to find the best business within lithium battery, it almost feels harder um, than to just study businesses and study industries and really become an expert of a few broad industries. And then you let the business management guide you and you ask the question, what are some of these, of all these fancy technologies that I keep hearing about? What are some of it that's actually going to be a differentiating edge for the leading company or for the company that used them? And what are some of it is just going to be either commoditized, which means everybody used them at the end of the day, um, or just not quite applicable um, to really sort of set things aside. So that's that almost feel like a um, more productive way as, as an investor that, that's you know, clearly very keen on understanding different technologies. So one of the examples would be um, when we study the insurance industry in China, it was very obvious that what Ping An is applying to its core insurance um, practice is very practical. And of course, you know, Ping An is investing ahead of all the other insurance companies in the world today um, in terms of technology. But we actually didn't start with Bitcoin and virtual currency and fintech and then find Ping An. We start studying Ping An first and studying the insurance um, industry in general. And then we realize what Ping An is doing that's different. And then we try to understand, you know, sort of the, the details of the technology that really set it apart. So, Chow, in a recent talk, you highlighted that older investors often dismiss technological changes as some kind of fad. Um, in, in my own experience, I'm not sure I dismiss new technologies as fads, but it's definitely true that I often underestimated how quickly and deeply they would really transform lives and transform consumer behaviors. So I guess my question for you is, how do you find the needles in the haystack? How do you find within a company the technologies that really are driving explosive optionality, explosive value creation in those companies? There was really no good, efficient way of doing it in a systematic way. Um, so I found the best way is just actually personal interest. So I happen to be someone who just inherently quite interested in fats. Um, just anything that catches on with a large group of human populations just fascinates me, even if it's just for a very short period of time. Um, so I found that just that interest. So, you know, there's a new app I hear about. There's anything new I hear about. I tend to just jump in and give it a try. Um, and then, you know, that almost become not just a good observational point for an investing perspective, but also just a lot of fun. Um, so, you know, that, that at least for me personally has worked well. 
Um, but yes, there are there are a lot of fads and there are a lot of technology companies with very short life cycles, which is another way of calling them a fad. Um, but ultimately, I think, you know, in general, the investors also tend to overestimate a technology in the short term, but really underestimate the technology in the long term. Um, so it's really about sort of having an interest broadly, um, but also sort of keep following a technology and watch how it morphs over time. Can you give us an example of something that in retrospect, maybe a lot of established investors just thought was a fad, but it really did not turn out to be a fad. It turned out to be transformational. Sure. Um, Esports is just probably the most um, obvious example that happened in the past two years. So when esports first came out, it sounded the most ridiculous concept. So not only, you know, you kids are wasting time playing video games, you're wasting even more time watching other people other kids play video games. I mean, it just is the most ridiculous thing. Um, but when you actually go down into the psychic of esports, it's actually not that different from traditional sports. If you love playing soccer as a little kid, and you're never going to be able to, you know, play soccer in the way that um, Cristiano Ronaldo do, then you watch him and you became a fan of his. And that's the exact same psyche. If you love playing Call of Duty, you love playing League of Legends, but you're never going to get to the level that these professionals do, then you watch them and you still sort of share the joy of what it's like to play at that expert level. Um, so esports, when when it first came out, it became a laughing stock, and a few of the platforms that do esports um, quickly went bust. Um, then Amazon bought Twitch, and I still remember when that transaction came through, a lot of people sort of poo poo over and say that's got nothing to do with Amazon. Looking back, that was probably one of the most brilliant thing that they did. And then of course esports caught on in Asia like a gangbuster since it's the largest um, video gaming market. And, and today, when Tencent launched a new game, where really any new game company launch a new game, they will be absolutely insane to not use esports as one of the most effective and important promotional channel for a new game, because that's really where the gaming communities congregate and communicate to each other. So, Chow, let me turn to one other question that I wanted to ask you to touch on at least quickly. And that is uh, from yet another quote that I picked up from my research in which you said that the best companies in Asia are five years ahead of the rest of the world. So for those of us in the United States who tend to think that Silicon Valley is the epicenter of you know, everything that is uh, good and great in the world of technological innovation, help us understand what motivated that quote. Yeah, so I agree Silicon Valley is a fantastic, magical place. Um, I love visiting. Um, I love going to Silicon Valley. The energy is fantastic. And what, what has caught on is the rest of the world also knows how magical Silicon Valley is. And if you look at the Chinese tech companies or some of the Indian tech companies, you will find so many senior management that actually cut their teeth at Silicon Valley. Um, so there is a very interesting talent flow from the epicenter of innovation in the world, which still is Silicon Valley to these other countries. But once these talent get to you know, their home country or get to these Asian markets, two things happen. One is the consumer's receptance of new technology is just at a different level. 
Um, I have never seen any group of consumers that's so willing to try something new as, as the Chinese consumers or the Indian consumers. So all of a sudden, you have a much more willing consumer that's trying your products. And secondly is, you know, your just a sheer volume of data you're going to get. So if you think about a Chinese tech company, you can potentially observe data on a billion people and think about the, the massive data mining and data analytics you could get. So the volume of the data also sort of goes exponential, which means you can innovate your product so much faster with the, the data you already collected. Give us an example of a company in Asia that perhaps we wouldn't be that familiar with that you're super excited about. Sure. Um, so one of the stocks that we're quite excited about is called Billy Billy. Um, and, you know, when, when you first hear about the concept of the business, it's really silly. So it started off as an animation website um, to have a lot of the Japanese animation shows for the Chinese young consumers. And this is a classic example of how a business just changed so fast and within the blink of the eye becomes something completely different. So we've been following this company quite closely and, and watch it going from just animation to animation, comics and gaming. But still, the core user group is very niche, probably between call it 16 to 22 year old. And then the next phase of morphing is it became a proper um, pan young people entertainment. So all of a sudden you go from just the animation and comics and gaming to lifestyle, to education, to auto. Um, and then the population or the addressable population also go from just the very young 16 to 22 year olds to all of a sudden 15 to 30 year olds. And then you start asking the question, oh, that's getting interesting. Um, and then another morph, of the uh, business actually making it become, I would say, both a YouTube and a Pinterest of China. Um, so now it really become a video-based Pinterest where no matter what you're interested in, um, as a young person, you can find just the, the most rich and curated content. Um, so, you know, this business really went from a very niche, almost very difficult to understand to a very unique whole young generation phenomenon. Um, and that all happened within 18 months. Um, so it really sort of, you know, it, it, it keeps us quite humble as investors. As in when you look at a business, you can never quite define it. You really have to have the patience of sticking to it and observe over time and suspend your own judgment until you really get to see what it could achieve. Fascinating. Reminds me of the young at heart conversation we had earlier. So, so Chow, wrapping up, I'd like to ask a piece of advice. So many of our listeners, I'm sure, current students and recent alumni are interested in pursuing careers in investing. What advice would you have for them? I would encourage them to do it. It's really, really fun. Um, it, I, it is one of the jobs that I've been doing it for, you know, over 10 years now. And not a single day on the job do I wish I had another job or do I, you know, wish I'm doing something else instead. Um, so it's, it's just, it's one of those things that keep you constantly learning, constantly interested in the world um, and the joy of discovery, the joy of making connections with people. It's just fantastic. Um, you know, what kind of job 
give you the opportunity as still a reasonably young person to sit across from a 60 year old founder and have 90 minutes of the guy's time and have him really walk through his life journey and why he started the business, what excites him, what still gets him to the office at 5 a.m. in the morning every day. And I have conversations like that probably on a daily basis, if not weekly basis. So it's just an incredibly privileged um, job, I think, that just keeps you learning about the world in general. Um, and, you know, the, the, the second thing about this job is you are really the only limit is yourself. So there is no there's really just two job titles. It's an incredibly flat industry. Either you're an analyst, which means you're still learning from a portfolio manager or you're a portfolio manager. And that's it. So you don't have to worry about five layers of promotion, how to climb the corporate ladder. The only thing you need to worry about is how to make the best return for your own investors. If you had to isolate one characteristic, what is the single most important thing that successful investors have the ability to do? The, the ability to do clearly is sort of the emotional stability to not let the market yank you around. But I would say the single differentiating factor is passion. I think for people that really love investing, this is heaven. For people that are doing it for the money, this is hell. Um, because ima also imagine a job where the entire world sees how you're doing on a real-time basis. There is nowhere to hide. Um, and, you know, there, there is, there is, even if you're on a holiday, you're always thinking about the market. Um, so, you know, I would say this is a job that is just fantastic if you really have the passion for it. And it, it does require incredibly hard work, um, even the traveling, which sounds glamorous, but I can guarantee you sort of five days on a bus deep in Chennai is not as glamorous as you think. Um, but it's the drive to really understand a business, to really understand a management team um, that give you the joy from the job. Okay, final question for you. Do you have any advice in particular for young women, especially given that it hasn't always been that easy for women to succeed on the buy side? You know, it actually is a puzzle um, of my own why women have not succeeded more because there's nothing that holds women back in this business. Your track record is everything. The returns of your portfolio, which is very black and white, um, that nobody can take it away and nobody can poo-poo over it, is everything that defines you as an investor. So this is, you know, almost in some ways, it's the ultimate meritocracy um, and the ultimate sort of capitalistic corner of, uh, of, of any businesses. So I really recommend young women, if you have the passion, if you have the interest to give this a try. Um, and it's also one of those careers that's incredibly flexible in a lot of ways. Um, the knowledge is cumulative, which means the understanding of a business and the industry is in your own head, is yours to take. So it almost doesn't matter if you have to take a few months break um, for family reasons, the understanding doesn't go away. So it's not like you're worried about a promotion getting taken away from you or anything like that. It's a, quite a purist job that all you think about is, is research and studying and understanding. Well, Chow, thanks for a really great conversation today. You, you've given us a number of really, I think, helpful and interesting perspectives on your investment framework. And I really appreciate your advice at the end, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. It's always fun to, uh, to speak to McIntyre community. 
Global Commerce Exchange is produced at the University of Virginia's McIntyre School of Commerce by Rick Carew, with support from McIntyre student Priti Nandi. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast are those of the guests and host, and do not reflect the official policy or position of either the school or the university. Sign up for future shows at globalcommerce.substack.com and subscribe to Global Commerce Exchange wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our listeners and to those who submitted such great questions. We look forward to being with you again soon. And as always, go Hoos!